0: How should the rest of the world react to China's AI ambitions? In this episode, Hoover Institution's senior fellow Larry Diamond, China expert Christopher Balding, co-founder of Rice, Hadley, Gates, and Manuel Anha Manuel, and Brookings Institution's deputy director of the Artificial Intelligence and Emerging Technology Initiative Chris Messerol. Examine how democracies should respond to China's emergence as an AI superpower. Welcome to Dissidents and Dictators, a series of conversations by the Human Rights Foundation dedicated to exposing and challenging authoritarianism around the world. This conversation was part of a four-part series presented in partnership with the Human Rights Foundation Stanford University's Global Digital Policy Incubator, the Hoover Institution, and the Stanford Institute for Human Centered Artificial Intelligence. I'm going to introduce our three panelists now uh, in the order that they're going to speak, um, slightly different than what's on the program, since we're going to begin with Christopher Balding, who's going to take us a little deeper uh, into the challenge that we're facing here. Uh, Christopher Balding is one of the leading experts on the Chinese economy and financial markets, and especially on Huawei and Chinese banks and their relationship to the party state and state security in China. He's a Bloomberg View contributor and advises governments, central banks, and investors around the world on China. Until recently, he taught at Fulbright University Vietnam, and before that, at the HSBC Business School of Peking University Graduate School. Next, we'll be joined by Anya Manuel, who is a a prolific writer and thinker in this space, and co founder and partner uh, in Rice, Hadley, Gates, and Manuel, a strategic consulting firm that helps US companies navigate international markets. She's the author of the critically acclaimed 2016 book from Simon and Schuster, This Brave New World, India, China, and the United States. From 2005 to 2007, she served as an official at the U.S. Department of State responsible for South Asia policy. Uh, finally, we'll hear an opening remarks from Chris Messerol a fellow in foreign policy at the Brookings Institution and the research and policy director of uh, a leading peer program, I would say, uh, in wrestling with these issues, the Brookings AI and Emerging Technology Initiative. Chris, uh, his recent work has focused on the rise of digital authoritarianism. He has a very important uh, recent paper on the Brookings website, I recommend, with Alina Polyakova, exporting digital authoritarianism, the Russian and Chinese models. So uh, with that, I want to uh, welcome our panelists. We'll ask them each to make some opening remarks, and uh, then uh, we will uh, engage in a conversation. So Christopher Balding, over to you.
1: Thanks for having me today, Larry. Um, I think the thing that I want to start off with, uh, is, is basically agreeing with everything that Minister Tang, uh, said. Uh, I think, uh, I had previously worked primarily as an economist, uh, for many years and then, uh, in, within the past two years, uh, had, uh, started down this rabbit hole of discovering all of this, uh, data and what China was doing, um, as I began researching, uh, Huawei. Um, and I think what came out of that was uh, we, we often hear about uh, the data that, uh, that companies collect on us uh, in democracies, and we often hear about uh, the data and hacking that, uh, that China is collecting on both its own citizens and foreign nationals. I think once you see the level of detail in the, and the mass amount of data that they are collecting, um, not just on their citizens uh, at home, but also on foreign individuals and companies around the world, I think it puts it in a, a staggering new light. Um, just to give you one example, we recently uh, discovered a database uh, that was basically uh, run by local government in China. Um, and it was truly staggering the level of detail that was in this. In addition to facial recognition, it was covering such details as was the individual wearing a scarf? How long was the scarf? What color was the scarf? Was there a pattern with the scarf? So, when we talk about this, um, the level of detail that that we're talking about, and that's just one very simple example that's going to apply to uh, domains across, uh, you know, from medical records to texts, uh, everything. Um, the level of detail that I think. Um, that the Chinese government is collecting on its own citizens is 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 not uh, is not understood. I think another uh, another factor is that they are uh, to, to to maybe uh, provide a, an entry point for Chris later on in the conversation. Is they are clearly um, using this model and uh, this data collection strategy that they have at home, um, and they are they are definitely working to export that model. Um, whether it is, uh, you know, we know for instance that Huawei and other companies are doing this uh, in other countries that are that are authoritarian leaning, um, and they are absolutely collecting uh, mass amounts of data on uh, on foreign nationals, even in open democracies. Um, and, and I think one of the things, and this is where my uh, my thinking has 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 changed substantially in the past couple of years. Uh, is, is I used to think that all of this, uh, to be honest, European talk about data privacy and GDPR uh, was, uh, was uh, you know, European socialism, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Um, my, my thinking on that matter has actually changed uh, enormously in the sense that I would probably now even go a few steps further than the Europeans um, in protecting data privacy, because China is absolutely using um, the openness of the West um, uh, against us. Um, and you know, just to give you one example from uh, the European uh, example, um, GDPR uh, has has a very important loophole, and that is uh, if if you are not if you do not have a relationship with a consumer, uh, that data has to be stored in a, in an EU jurisdiction. But if you have a, a uh, relationship with, with a company, that data can be stored in any jurisdiction of the company's choosing. Well, what happens is the end-user license agreement for uh, CCTV cameras, IoT devices, and phones um, the end user license agreement uh, from those manufacturers in China state for in almost all cases very clearly, we will take your data to China and the data protection uh, in China is not nearly as good as it is in Europe. And it actually states that in the end user license agreement. Um, and so I think one of the things is, is that uh, the, from a philosophical standpoint, is it's also become very interesting that uh, China one of the key aspects of China is is this massive data collection, is intended not just to monitor for, let's say, potential acts of violence, but it is really intended to get into very intimate uh, aspects of our lives, and uh, and and really act as a type of thought control or guidance, um, and so the right to privacy as a citizen in a democracy and how we think about things i think is is very important and it also gets to the heart of what we in democracies think about uh when we think about you know we are free from government interference even domestically um not just uh, not just with regards to china and so i think that would that would be something that we should think about in democracies how we manage those specific issues of data privacy and data security
0: Great. Uh, Thank you so much, Christopher. Uh, I would just say uh, information is also leverage, and uh, I don't want the People's Republic uh, of China having that leverage over people like yourselves who might at some point be in positions of government authority uh, or of government authority again. And with that, I uh, introduce and hand the floor over to someone who did spend time at the State Department, may do so again in the future, who knows, Uh, Anya Manuel.
2: Thank you, Larry. Nice to see you all. And apologies for my tech issues. I'm actually dialing in from Europe, and so something went wrong, but I now should be on and joining you fully. So I apologize. I didn't actually hear what Christopher said, but I'll just pick up on some thoughts like we all discussed before this panel on Mm -hmm. so what are we all going to do about it? What can democracies do together to ensure that we retain a strong lead in artificial intelligence and in the other key technologies which is where really the race between China and the U.S. is going to be joined? So far the Trump administration I would say has woken up to the issue But their policies have been almost entirely defensive. It's build a moat around our technology. You know, stronger export controls make it harder for Chinese companies to invest in American AI companies and others. It's time to play offense. So we should focus on what the U.S. and our allies can do to compete rather than just focusing on keeping China down. And I'll just make four quick points and we we can discuss them more in the Q&A. First, we've got to stop doing this alone. We have to work with our allies. Um, Mike Brown, Pav Singh and I have been talking for over a year about um, an idea we call the Technology 10, which would be a flexible structure bringing together countries along with academics and key um, folks from industry in flexible working groups to solve some of these issues. So one, For example, would be a working group on AI to come up with thoughtful uh, criteria and really a framework for how to do AI ethically, everything that you have been talking about in the sessions of this conference. Another one might be, how does the West stay in the lead on semiconductors? You could think of five or six or seven others. So that's one. How do we work with our allies? Two, of course, the US and our friends need to stay in the lead on semiconductor design and have fabs. (laughs) As you all know, the -the state-of-the-art fabs cost a lot of money. They cost ten billion to $20 billion each. They're mostly found in South Korea and Taiwan, some in um, Japan. I think the Trump administration here has leaned in the right direction by giving a bunch of incentives for TSMC to do Build-A-Fab here in Arizona. That's great. Those who are in the know say TSMC probably won't make their most advanced chips here, which of course defeats the purpose. So more needs to be done there. And I know there's the Chips for America Act that Mark Warner and John um, Cornyn and others are supporting. So people are starting to think about it, but it's a really important priority. So that was two. Three, we have got to boost our own federal research and development funding. Uh, During the height of the Cold War, the federal government spent up to 2% of our GDP on basic uh, R&D. Now we've been reducing, reducing, reducing precipitously in the past four years, and now we're down to 0.7% of our GDP. The private sector is making up a lot of that, but they're not necessarily investing in the R&D that keeps us the most competitive when we're talking about this from a national security issue. So clearly more needs to be done there. There is a Chuck Schumer bill out called the Endless Frontiers Act, which is trying to do some of that. My friends on the Hill tell me that this one doesn't stand a lot of chance of being passed. It's a hundred billion dollars over five years, which is a lot, but um, something of that form clearly needs to be done. And then the fourth point is, and Larry, you and I have talked about this, is to stay in the lead, basic research needs to be both safe and open. So there's been a lot of talk recently about restricting Chinese students from studying in the United States and researchers being here. I personally uh, think that's a lot of overreach. I know Larry, you and others wrote a great um, edited volume warning of the types of activities that the Chinese and others are doing. Uh, Many of them illicit (laughs) or at least nefarious. And so it was an important wake-up call that our academic institutions shouldn't be so naive. But the basic idea that we should keep the open system, I think, is important. And you can do a lot. I actually just finished a report with Artie Bienenstock, who was our former Stanford Dean of Research, and Peter Michelson and lots of others on this. In our view, you can... Um, enforce the existing conflict of interest and funding rules, train people in what the Chinese and some others are trying to do to make them aware of it and make them less naive, and train foreigners who are coming to work in our system and say, here are the consequences if you cheat. Here are the consequences if you download a bunch of IP off the Stanford servers and try to send it home. And they include jail time. And I think there's a lot you can do short of a draconian restriction and closing out basic science and research. And then a final piece of that, of course, is that we also need to make sure that our own STEM education system is first rate again. It hasn't been. There are a lot of trouble at K-12. That's, of course, hard. It's a state issue mostly. But there are small things you could do that wouldn't be very expensive. After Sputnik, uh, the Eisenhower administration put in place the National Defense Education Pact. Um, act, which created scholarships for people to study science technology. In that case, it was also Slavic languages. Why wouldn't we do something like that now? It would cost between one and three billion dollars a year, and I believe would be money well spent. Lots of other ideas, but I'll leave it there for now, and we can have a conversation about it. Thank
3: you.
0: Great. So, Chris Messerol, over to you.
3: Thanks, Larry, for uh, having me, and thanks for uh, Stan- to Stanford for putting on this great event. Um, I think I'll, uh, rather than just kind of describing how China um, has been exporting its uh, AI and digital authoritarianism, I'll just build off of the uh, insights of uh, Mr. Tang and, and Mr. Baldwin and, and Anya's comments about, um, you know, what it is that we can do uh, to push back. And uh, again, I would also um, really encourage the viewers to, to go and look at uh, Anya's papers with um, uh, Pav and Puv Singh and Mike Brown. They're really fantastic. Um, the, the main point that I would make um, here is that democracies, if we want to counter what China's doing, what we really need to do is be smart across the entire AI stack and be targeted for you know how we want to push back. And so you know China has methodically worked its way up from the hardware layer to the application layer and now increasingly to the standards layer. You know, but those layers are very different um, and require, you know, involve a different set of trade-offs and considerations in terms of how, you know, we best want to counter what China's doing. Um, so with that framing, you know, there's really three points I would make. And the, the first is that we absolutely need to get our own house in order you know, at the platform or application layer. And this kind of gets to a bit what Christopher was talking about earlier. Um, we We simply need to get our act together and begin to place clear and consistent guidelines for how... Digital platforms can govern the content, information, and data that are shared in them. Um, in particular, for democracies to, to outcompete Chinese AI-based apps and platforms in the long run, what I would say is that we need to have clear and consistent governance models for tech platforms like Facebook and Google. Um, democracy and human rights, just they won't win in a world where the only choice is between whether the Xi regime gets unfettered access to our data or whether Zuckerberg does. And so the, the good news here is that there's actually a lot of low-hanging fruit, both in terms of data and algorithms. Um, you know, So when it comes to data, I know Christopher talked about this earlier, but the e- EU has already passed GDPR. California has passed its own legislation. And you know, while I'm not really going to hold my breath for Congress to pass a, a comprehensive data privacy plan in the U.S., there is still a lot happening around data sharing that can go beyond uh, GDPR and kind of make the kinds of improvements that uh, Christopher was talking about. Uh, including in the upcoming Digital Services Act in, in Europe, um, so the the point I would make uh, with data in particular is that even as China gets more aggressive about unveiling its own security, you know, data security and privacy model, it, it released its you know unveiled its big new plan a, a month or two ago. You know, there are very natural ways for us to outcompete them, um, and I'd say the same is true on the algorithm side. There's a lot of movement, again, mostly in Europe but also in the U.S. around algorithmic transparency uh, that I'm that I'm equally optimistic about, and I, and I bring this one up you know, I think the, the TikTok controversy really exemplifies why we need this, right? If we're afraid of censorship and propaganda coming in via algorithm, the way to respond is not to kind of create ad hoc, you know, measures to target specific companies. The way to respond is to pass really robust algorithmic transparency legislation. And then if companies like TikTok aren't comfortable with the sunlight that that would bring, then they don't get access to our markets or other markets. Um, so I can say more about that. But the, the the main point I would make is that we just need to Uh, If we want to win globally, uh, we need to get our own house in order on data governance and platform governance. And the second point I would make is that um, we also need to be smart. Uh, And what I mean by that is we need to be a lot more targeted at the hardware and manufacturing layer. Um, Anya talked about this briefly, but AI is based on data algorithms and computing power. And one of the most important trends that's emerged over the last few years is the growing importance of computing power in that triad given the the marginal returns of data and the open sourcing of most algorithms. And so as with the the platform layer two, the the good news here is that there's a lot we can do. Uh, The first is that um, we can target very naturally the weakest point in China's AI ecosystem, which is semiconductor manufacturing. For all the effort that Beijing has put into Made in China 2025, their biggest flaw really remains semiconductor manufacturing. They they simply don't know, uh, the easiest way I can put it is that they don't know how to build the machines that build the machines. Um, and this is kind of the flip side of what Anya talked about earlier in terms of building greater capacity out you know, in the U.S. and elsewhere. One thing we can do is deny capacity to China to be able to produce cutting edge chips because the good news here is that only the U.S., the Netherlands, and Japan produce the kind of advanced litho- photolithography equipment that is used to manufacture cutting edge processors. Um, so rather than kind of blindly place export controls on things like GPUs or CPUs you know, for which there are really you know, easy and ready substitutes you know, we can impose some pretty smart controls that that target only the hardware China can't produce on its own. Um, and the second thing, in terms of being smart, is just literally and again, Anya kind of talked about this at length, but we literally need to just be smarter. We need to educate and recruit the best and brightest. Um, with AI, you know, AI compute is now outpacing Moore's law and doubling, you know, roughly you know every three three to six months or so. And over the next generation, I kind of I'm in the camp that thinks most of the breakthroughs in AI will happen because of aggregate compute and compute per watt breakthroughs and that those will be the biggest driver of AI transformation. The, the catch is that there's a very small pool of people who can drive those breakthroughs and we need to have as many of them as possible. Uh, we need to open our doors to the smartest engineers around the world, um, including and, and especially um, from China itself. Um, and then the, the last point I would make in addition to kind of getting our house in order and being smart is that, and this again, it dovetails pretty naturally with with comments is we need to make friends so you know china at the standards layer china's being a lot more aggressive um, recently than they have been in the past and one of the things they noticed um, about uh, you know the american tech sector is the tremendous value that america gained and accrued over the past 50 years by having control over global global tech standards in the post-war era and as a result they've kind of you know tried to invest in that pretty heavily over the past decade Uh, not just around tech like 5G, but also applications like facial recognition technology. Uh, And one of the worries I have is I don't want the G regime setting the standard globally for how facial recognition technology should be used. Um, And so one of the things that that's going to mean, there's kind of two things that I think the U.S. needs to do uh, and democratic countries need to do. One is to become much more involved and, and not just more involved, but more coordinated in how we approach global standard setting bodies. You know, the U.S. still has more people You know, working at the UN than China does, but we're not nearly as coordinated in terms of what we're pushing on and how we're kind of driving towards a a specific agenda as the Chinese. The second is that we've kind of just rested on our laurels and just assumed that um, you know anything that's coming out of the U.S. is going to become de facto a global standard, and that's not true anymore. And so we need to think pretty hard about how we take internal standards bodies like the NIST and begin to kind of you know have them have a greater presence on the global stage. Um, So. Uh, with that, I'll, I'll kind of end my comments here and we can talk more about um, more about
0: them. But uh, the, the three things, just get our house in order, be smart,
3: and make friends.
0: Thank you. Uh, well, thank all three of you. Uh, my hand is kind of cramped now because I couldn't write fast <laughs> enough to record everything you said that was, um, uh, you know, really uh, profoundly important. Uh, I want to throw out uh, a few questions for you to chew on further uh, now, uh, and uh, I'll go in the same order in which you initially spoke. And uh, you know, you can each speak to one or two of them. Uh, Christopher, to to you first, uh, and I'll I'll express them all, and then we'll go in the same order. Um, Maybe you could dilate a little further uh, on how the revolution of the Internet of Things uh, is going to uh, transform all of this. And I'd like you all or any of you uh, who want to, to address something that we've just, you know, touched on uh, lightly uh, and that keeps coming up uh, in several of our sessions. But I don't think we've really drilled down into, which is that the rules and standards for um the future of the internet uh of all things digital uh for the platforms that we're going to be operating and the infrastructure that's going to you know be the basis of everything digital in the future uh it's all being written now in shadowy barely understood international forums many of them under the aegis of the UN or um, uh, Its um, uh, bodies like the International Telecommunications Union. These negotiations are going on. Uh, I have a friend uh, from a non governmental but former governmental position who's been at many of them uh, and sees China kind of running circles around, uh, frankly, uh, American representatives and much of the West that we're not paying enough attention so if any of you have any thoughts on that i'd like to hear it uh, the third issue uh i'll pose for you anya in particular is to ask you to spell out uh maybe in a little bit more of the detail you did and i think your seminal piece recently in the um uh uh what was it the financial times uh the um <clears throat> uh the top 10 concept and how would it really work uh, in, in practice uh, and who would be the players or what would be the uh, kind of rotating coalitions that could make that work effectively. And finally to Chris uh, at the risk of putting too much on the table, there's a lot of talk in one conference after another uh, that I've been involved with about algorithmic transparency. And, of course, there's a debate between uh, the platforms and, let's say, civil society and government, on the other hand, about the legitimacy of this and how it would work in practice. But if you could put a little bit more flesh on the bones of the concept of algorithmic transparency and and, um, how it could be secured and in a way governed or enforced, uh, I think our audience would be grateful. So again, Christopher, to you uh, to start off and respond to anything else you'd like.
1: Sure, so I'll hit the IoT question and then uh, uh, delve into Chris's uh, area just, just briefly. Um, so I think uh, you know one of the things is is when a lot of people think about uh, data privacy and things like that, uh, the first question that they ask is, well, you know, like with TikTok, well, you know, if, if TikTok or China wants to watch me making a cat video, then it really doesn't matter. Okay. Um, but the reality is, is that with a lot of, uh, a lot of what's going on, um, it's not just your phone, which is recording a stunning amount of data on you. But it's also all these IoT devices. And the reason that the IoT devices are are very important is first of all, there is in almost in, in a- almost all of them, there is just a stunning lack of any security whatsoever. And they and they are capturing large amounts of data on you. And I'll just give you one example. Um, So China actually maintains large amounts of databases that basically tracks uh, all batteries, all phone batteries in regions of China. Okay. And when we first discovered this, I was a little I was a little puzzled, you know, why is China keeping these vast databases of cell phone batteries um, all throughout the, all throughout China uh, in, in, in a couple provinces we discovered. And a and we we basically unpacked that first of all, they have the ability to hack the phone through the battery. So, first of all, they can actually get into the phone through, through the battery. Second of all, even if you cannot hack the phone because there's uh, some type of, uh, uh device specific restriction, um, it also does provide you large amounts of very detailed information. Typically, it will provide, uh, geolocation information. It will provide usage information if you're, if you're on your phone, um, how often you've been using that phone. Um, the times of day that you're using that phone will provide a lot of information. And so a lot of times people think well they need to be able to listen to my conversations to understand what it is I've been doing. Well, they don't really need to if, if they know that the four of us have talked they can probably say, oh, well, we know what, you know, uh, these four people were probably talking about. And if we're China, it's probably not good for us, okay? So there, there's a lot of, there's a stunning amount of detail that they, that they can do with this. And so whether it is, um, you know, and they're attaching uh, internet connectivity to just about everything, refrigerators, ovens, you know, uh, that, that, voice, uh, that voice assistant in your home, everything. And so if that data is not, uh, is not secured, that's a that's a very real problem, and the and the issue is is, is we've kind of talked about uh, playing defense, as Anya mentioned earlier. The problem is is that basically right now in a lot of these in a lot of these let's say uh, simple devices, a lot uh, a large majority, in, in most cases, come out of China, and a lot of times even the devices, for instance, like there's a very famous uh, camera maker in China. HIK. But nobody has an HIK camera. HIK has, you know, 50, a couple hundred uh, white labels. So you go to Amazon and you purchase a camera and you don't realize it's actually made by actually the PLA. And that data typically in the end user license agreement, as we talked earlier, is being stored in China. So when we talk about these IoT devices, yes, it's absolutely the AI and and things like that. Um, It's also a lot of these, you know, much, much stupider devices, uh, you know, to use a to use a blunt term and the information that they're able uh, that they're able to pick up on us. And then. To delve into one thing that is really in Chris's wheelhouse that I'll just uh, talk about, when we talk about these standards that I think are are so important, one of the issues is is, is, uh, with the the TikTok example, Um, because there really was no legal standard. Um, the trump administration was forced to use a national security uh, order um, that was really st- kind of straining um, at, straining to really make the case because th- there is no digital standard for for data there is no there is no legal standard for um, what we expect of data security privacy routing algorithmic uh, transparency all of these issues so i i, I think and, and I'll let chris speak more to that but that is absolutely one of the key things that I think would be very important for all of us you're so right. I think
2: many of us are veterans of the world internet forum that used to be held in China every year, where they would invite people from around the world to sort of give you China's instead of the internet. And the first thing they always did was give every participant a free Huawei, <laughs> which we then do to leave nicely in our hotel room <laughs> and not take home with us. Um, but more seriously, i I've just, I agree with everything that's been said. Um, I just wanted to underline what Chris was saying on the rules and standards point, because this is so esoteric and frankly, mind, it can be mind numbingly boring, but it's critical. And you are so right, Chris, that it's, it's the U.S. just assumed because we have, since the dawn of the internet, always just dominated the space that we would continue to do so. And the Chinese have frankly been incredibly smart. And one of the complications is that it, in some cases it's UN bodies, often it's private sector NGOs like 3GPP has a huge role. Others, that's all fine and good. If everyone is being honest, and bring forward the best standards and the best standard. What the Chinese have started doing in, in several cases that Melanie Hart and I actually wrote a piece on this this summer, in several cases that have been documented, they will have pre-meetings with the Chinese companies and say, We'd like you to vote this way. (laughs) And sometimes that means on 5G, it meant, could you please vote for the Huawei standard, even if you think somebody else's standard is is much better? Now, that's not always happening, and we should be a little careful not to paint the Chinese in, in, in a darker light than they need to be painted. And I also would hesitate, and Chris, I'd love your views on this, but on the tech standards, I'd hesitate to go to a model to emulate the Chinese and say well this is going to be all top-down government run and NIST is going to control it or someone in the US government's going to be in charge because actually the best standards come when the technologists are in charge. But the same thing that I mentioned with keeping basic science open, allowing people to understand what's happening here so they can be less naive, maybe having a pre-call before one of these important standards meetings and saying hey, by the way, this is what the Chinese are up to. You guys might want to get on the ball. And just watching it a little bit more carefully than we have been. I think minor adjustments like that can make all the difference. Um, But I wouldn't want to go to an entirely top-down model. And why don't we just, I don't know, Larry, if you don't mind, what if we just stick with the rules and standards piece, and then I can talk about the Tech 10 kind of after Chris has a chance to chat. Okay.
0: Okay. I'll come back to you in a
3: minute. Um, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I'd just I, again, I would kind of echo everything that uh, I hope this isn't turning into a boring kind of echo chamber. But I, I would, you know, foot stomp everything that was said. Um, the the two points I would make um, on standards and global kind of adoption of standards is that there's really two pieces to it, and I, I completely agree. We don't want a top down kind of standard by diktat coming out of the White House. We want, you know, an open kind of tech driven standard or scientist driven standards process. But what we need is just a lot more coordination. I and mean, we need to be having the same kind of pre-calls, you know, with different stakeholders. We need to go in with a much clearer and consistent agenda about what we're trying to achieve. Um, and so that's one point is just it's not just being there, it's being coordinated and kind of driving in the same direction uh, in the way that China has been able to do. Um, the second is that what China's also doing is they're not just focusing on what's happening in Geneva or kind of other areas, you know, where, where these global standards conversations happen they're coupling it with really intense on the ground lobbying in capitals around the world. So they're going to West Africa, they're going to East Africa, right? They're going to South Asia and they're kind of, you know, they have a clear sense of what they want to do on the standard side and they're building up support piecemeal country by country around the world in a way that frankly, I think, you know, again, it just kind of reflects more complacency than anything else on our end. But we're not not having those conversations on the ground that then get kind of ported over into support at fora like the U.N. Um, so, I would say that those two things need to happen in tandem. Greater coordination on our end, and we can't just assume that the only conversations that matter are in DC or Geneva because they're not. They're, they're all over the world now.
0: Well, what could be a more perfect segue uh, to asking uh, Anya to elaborate on what a more coordinated democratic approach globally would look like? Uh, so, why don't you? Um, kind of expand on this concept of a kind of flexible and overlapping coalition that is loosely encompassed by your idea of a tech top 10, Anya.
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, there they're starting to be. There's a small group of us kind of thinking about this, iterating in the space. CNAS has done a lot of great work on this. I think Richard Fontaine is coming out with a piece in Foreign Affairs that has a slightly different view. So, the, I think the bottom line point is, it's got better coordination has to happen and has to happen soon. <laughs> and the details remain to be worked out. The structure that I would favor is something that, as I said, is really flexible. And I know that's hard for governments to do. So in some of the reports I've read on this, people say, well, you need like a new OECD. And, you know, the um, Downing Street, the Boris Johnson administration has come out with an idea of a democracy 10. But the countries in it, in other versions of this I've seen are static. And that's just not how technology works. The way I would envision this is, for example, on semiconductors, you would invite the countries that lead on semiconductors. You know, the Netherlands, the US, that make the semiconductor manufacturing equipment that both of you talked about earlier, um, then probably Korea, maybe Taiwan, although that's complicated, Japan, the US, maybe one or two others. And you would have at the table, Some of the key CEOs, and I would bring business in right away because, frankly, some of the pushback we're getting from U.S. business on the restrictions on them to exporting to China and others come because, you know, no one's come up with an alternative for them. It's their biggest market. (laughs) Understandably, they're a little bit frustrated at all of that, that they're essentially being shut down. So you need to have a dialogue saying, hey, here's the real national security concern." Here's how we stay in the lead. What do you think we need rather than just lobbying us for um, more support for building fabs everywhere, which obviously no government can support, what are we gonna do? And you have a working group that meets over time, comes up with real actionable things that can then be implemented in the government. So a working group would include some CEOs, some government representatives, and maybe one or two, a few academics and you might change over time. A group on AI might have a totally different composition. There, maybe you want the Israelis at the table. Maybe you'd want the Indians at the table for some of these, but not others. And then so on and so forth. There could be a group on export controls. You probably would want that with more European countries and maybe the EU at the table. And so that's how we're envisioning this, um, the Tech 10 concept. It's so far, It's a hard thing to get right, and I fully acknowledge that. There are small attempts at it. I mentioned the UK approach, which I think is the farthest along, though even they haven't gotten much further than suggesting it. I don't know any major power that's picked up on it yet. The Trump administration is trying a really piecemeal approach. So Esper recently announced his little AI partnership with other Defense Departments, I guess. Um, The State Department has confusingly two or three initiatives that do bits and pieces of this, but don't seem to be very coordinated within the U.S. government. Which brings me to my final point. This is really hard to do well. And in the U.S. government, we are just awful at coordinating tech policy. And so another idea I've been thinking through with some colleagues is how do you do that more effectively? I know Tom Donilon and others have called for having a deputy national security advisor Mm -hmm. for tech that would work more closely with OSDP. because one of the things we're seeing now is that commerce comes out with restriction on sending semiconductors abroad. Treasury doesn't necessarily know When, when some of the online student ban things came out this summer. Apparently, the Department of Education wasn't aware and the State Department wasn't aware, which is a big problem since they grant the visas. So a little more coordination within our government on all of these tech issues is very much in order.
0: Great. Uh, I'd like to uh, talk about imports and exports now, if I may. Uh, first, I'll read a question uh, that's been posed Uh By my colleague, uh, our former ambassador to Russia, director of the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies, Mike McFaul, who um, asked about exports uh, in seeking to set international norms and standards. What would you all recommend that U.S. uh, that we What would you recommend that we do about U.S. tech companies exporting products to uh, aid autocracies around the world? This is an issue that has come up, uh, before. And should we, um, uh, slap, uh, export controls on some of this technology that can aid a uh, digital authoritarianism? Uh, and he mentions the complaints about Sandvine and Cloudfare, uh, for example, recently helping the Belarus dictatorship. And, uh, let me lay, uh, in a way I haven't heard addressed so far in this conference, uh, imports on the table. Um, You know, you could say, well, we could uh, pass a law that would uh, uh, ensure uh, in a legal sense uh, that um, any foreign company would have to get, uh, would have to respect the privacy rights of um, uh, American users uh, in order to be able to uh, operate here in the US, or even to put their Internet of Things technology into US markets. But could we uh, trust and verify uh, their compliance with that? Or should we, uh, Christopher, particularly to you, uh, simply ban uh, certain uh, Chinese uh, uh, devices that um, you know we can't uh, ensure uh, would be in compliance. So uh, why don't we talk about imports and exports for a moment? Uh, maybe go in reverse and start with Chris, and then to Anya and Christopher. Yeah.
3: So I would say that the, I would make two points on the on the export side. I think the important thing to do it doesn't make sense to place export controls if there's readily available substitutes, right? So you need to find kind of, you know, what are the technologies that they can't get anywhere else? And so, or that they can't produce on their own. And I think there, there's a really small class of technologies that that fit that category. Uh, one, which I talked about earlier, are these things called advanced uh, photolithography machines, which kind of etch the processors and silicon. Um, and it's, you know, when you're, when you're trying to create something with, you know, six nanometer precision, or, you know, at that scale, it's pretty challenging to produce those kind of machines and technologies. And China just has not been able to build that capability yet. Um, and, you know, so that is kind of immediately where I go. There's also some other kinds of sensors, like the Netherlands has some of the best um, sensing equipment uh, in the world for things related to computer vision, right. Um, and so the Netherlands, uh, to their credit, actually have started to Place pretty strong export controls on some of their best cutting-edge uh, sensing equipment, which makes it difficult for um, you know that Beijing to be able to to make the you know the kinds of uh, facial recognition technologies uh, that they would like to use. Um, they're, they're they're still able to make some substitutes, but they're not quite as good as they would be otherwise without you know, with those sensors. Um, so those are the the two kind of. Um, Uh, immediate technologies that come to mind. There's a third, but it's a little bit of field from AI, which is biotech. I think we're going to come into this issue very quickly in the coming years around some of the leading biotech equipment that's primarily based in democracies, but China, you know, uh, has expressed interest in using and is starting to use, but I think it's going to come to a head in a few years um, and we should start having that conversation now. Um, on On the import side, um, I think the uh, technology that we need to be most concerned with um, are the ones that are really hard to verify um, you know not just on hardware but that have to do with information assurance um, and so you know things like Huawei's kind of equipment um, for telecommunications infrastructure that's kind of where I am most concerned about any kind of equipment coming from China it can be difficult to verify um, just the physical hardware itself because the the you know it's very easy to change things at small scales that that are difficult to uh, pick up on um and if they were able to compromise that equipment um you know the consequences to american intelligence and american society would be pretty significant so um i i would you know i can sp- speak more about it but i think that that's probably the area where we most need to need to pay the most ap- uh, attention Back over to you
0: yeah um,
2: i would agree with chris because mike my- this question is right on, except you very quickly are banning a lot of things without solving the problem. And I think this was Chris's point don't do an export control if they're easy substitutes. And for most of these technologies, there really are. <laughs> right? So that's the problem. And then pretty soon, so you're starting with export controls, but then are you going to stop American companies from investing in things like Vision, SenseTime, others? Maybe we haven't talked about that yet, but how far does this go? And is it really possible to put the genie back in the bottle, especially on digital authoritarianism? And I think probably not through export controls. So you can do other things to you know, inoculate the world, kind of what both Chris and Christopher were talking about. Do you have one coherent set of standards for what would be appropriate privacy protections? So you're not picking on TikTok and, and WeChat, but you have one standard. You say you meet the standard you're in, you don't meet the standard you're out. Um, that's how I would try to solve the problem. I know that's a lot harder, but otherwise you're just playing whack-a-mole and you're
1: going to lose.
0: No, yeah. not a very satisfying future uh, if that's what we're doing. Christopher? Right.
1: Yeah. So I I generally agree with uh, with uh, my fellow panelists. And the story I remember is uh, back when Saddam was in power in Iraq, uh, the U.S. government blocked a lot of uh, chips to, to him uh, to prevent, uh, his, his weapons program. And then over time they, they noticed that, uh, that I believe it was, uh, PlayStation exports to Iraq were soaring and they, they uncovered this and they said, what's going on here? And what they realized is they were pulling out the chips from the Xbox or, or the PlayStation and putting them in, in guided missiles. Um, so that's a, That's a perfect example of when you talk about trying to restrict exports, um, if, if you 're just blocking it and there 's all these other substitutes you you 've done nothing but uh but kind of in, in encourage the problem um, and and I, I think what when if if you expand this to the software uh, issue uh you know just to take an example, how do you verify and i I think this is something that um, as as a lot of these as Chinese apps uh, and other apps, uh, not just Chinese um, become so ubiquitous and this is also applies to IOT is when we talk about these standards, one of the issues that would be very reasonable to include as some type of standard is how is data being stored? How does data being routed? Um, and just to give you one example, um, Zoom, no matter where you are in the world, routes almost all traffic through China. Okay. Larry, if you and I were talking between Palo Alto and Los Angeles, there's no reason for traffic to go from Los Angeles to Shanghai and then back to Palo Alto. Okay. There's only one reason that 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 would happen. Okay. So when we talk about these types of standards and whether it's IoT, whether it's how data flows, how data is stored. These are the types of standards that I think for especially American consumers and companies are going to be most important.
0: Great. Um, uh, We have just a few minutes left, uh, so we're going to have one final round here, and I'm going to combine uh, three questions. Uh, I'm going to read the first one because I think it's a great question. Uh, How can the U.S. reshift the global narrative away from the U.S.-China schoolyard fight towards a more inclusive fate of democracy question? And how can digitizing countries be similarly courted to counter Chinese influence along the digital Silk Road? And several of you have already uh, uh, spoken to, as you have, Chris, the question of all these other countries beyond China in the top 10 or the top 15 uh, in Africa, um, elsewhere in Asia, Latin America, and so on. And this leads to my other two questions of whether we're really, um, you know, whether we have the capacity to wage the battle internationally, not just uh, in terms of the training of scientists uh, and engineers, but in the training of diplomats. Here and abroad to understand the issues uh, and what's at stake in these global forums, including our diplomats in Africa, Latin America, and elsewhere, who are even political counselors or ambassadors and not necessarily science and and technology uh, experts within the embassies. And so finally, as someone asked whether we should more countries should have digital ministers. Uh, like Audrey Tang, and maybe the United States should have one so um uh let's conclude uh, in the same original order of Christopher Anya, and Chris. go ahead
1: I think one of the- one of the issues here is that what what I think you're you're seeing in a lot of ways is, that, is I think you're kind of generally speaking in the middle of a let's say a fracturing of Uh, of the world in a sense, Um, in the sense of digital, uh, you know, products, supply chains, uh, data flows, things like that. Um, You're kind of, I think, seeing this crack between uh, how data is used. You know, um, Anya referred to earlier about uh, the Chinese would be very unified. Um, I don't think most American diplomats from my conversations would see representing Facebook interests as their primary concern. Um, they don't see uh, their interests in working with Facebook as, we want Facebook to do X because this helps U.S. global dominance. Um, I, I don't think that's their general approach to the problem. That is the Chinese approach to the problem. That's why they marshal uh, their companies to say, this is how you're going to vote um, frequently, Um so I think it's a very different approach. And I think that's leading to what we're seeing is, is this kind of uh, split of, of how things uh, are happening. Um I do think it is, uh, and, and I would even expand it probably beyond uh 10 in different ways. Um, but I think this idea of um ensuring uh things like supply chain integrity, how data is managed between countries. Um this is why uh you know Facebook is uh is, is storing so much data in Europe now. Um, all of these issues, I think, are, are absolutely fundamental. And you're absolutely seeing this split where uh, countries are, are realizing, and I think it's really sped up over the past six months, this is something very real, and we have to confront it now. I think the challenge is, is, as Anya has noted, is that these issues change so fast that you know if you pass legislation in six months, it could be out of date. Um, so, so how do you how do you confront that situation? And it, it's 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 a very thorny issue. I mean, there's there's no way around. Anya, thank you.
2: I love the question about the schoolyard fight, and I think it's so right on because. In my view, by bullying and browbeating the world about 5G, instead of letting the technical folks talk to each other and really understand that there is a real issue here and it's apolitical, (laughs) we have created an equivalence somehow between the United States and China. And that is just not true. (laughs) So, some of the things I was talking about earlier are to get us, frankly, back on the right foot with our friends and allies. To say hey we want to help all of us succeed we want to help all of us remain the most competitive technology countries on earth and to compete with china bring it on right let's have a fair competition and i think you do that by reformulating this as a positive strategy as opposed to shutting china out so that's on the schoolyard fight Um, On digital ministers, absolutely, there should be more Audrey Tangs in the world. (laughs) She's so wonderful. And I've interviewed her a couple of times now for things like this. And it's just the combination of being irreverent and funny and how you educate your populace about um, election interference, which I think she didn't talk very much about today. But what Taiwan did was absolutely first rate and how they just... Use the Chinese playbook against them and used humor to counter the disinformation. We're just not doing any of that. We seem to just always be screaming at each other. So, yes, more Audrey's. And finally, I just wanted to close with you know, we're talking about digital authoritarianism, absolutely important. But Chris already mentioned it when he mentioned biotech. There's so many tech issues that are just around the bend that we're not quite focused on yet. And I'd like us as a country and as a group of friends and with other countries to start thinking a little bit ahead. So biotech is one of them. It's pretty late in that game because, you know, CRISPR is already happening in China and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Lots of other things that we can still talk about. But one that no one's really talking about yet and that I personally am very concerned about is fintech. When you look at how dominant... Alipay, and Financial, WeChat are in the global payment system, we should no longer take for granted that the dollar is always gonna be the currency that clears most transactions in the world. You just won't need the correspondent banking system. And what we're doing in the US at least, is not intentionally, but just because it's easier if you're a bureaucrat and you don't know something to say no, rather than to experiment and say yes, we are really shutting down a lot of fintech innovation in our own country, and we're creating a huge opening. And if we don't wake up in two years, we'll have another five G on our hands.
0: Thank you. Well, thank you,
3: Chris. Yeah, I, w- I will. St- I'll start by just foot stomping the fintech issue. I think in addition to paying attention to just the value that the U.S. has accrued from standards control, they've also obviously, you know, China's also very keenly aware of the value of the, to the US of having the, the global reserve currency. And I think they're clearly investing very heavily in their own fintech sector as a way of trying to weaken uh, the global, you know, hegemony, basically, of the dollar. And so that's, if they're able to kind of uh, make inroads in that area, it'll have pretty significant strategic consequences for the US uh, and other democracies around the world that I think we need to pay a lot more attention to. And I think the natural place to start, frankly, is to open up more innovation in that space, as Anya said. Um, the The other points I would say uh, to your question about um, what we should be doing more broadly, I think one is increasing capacity. You know, not just in terms of digital, you know, ministers, which are great, but like throughout all of government, as you talked about. I know the National Security Commission on AI had a, as part of, I think it's second quarterly recommendations last summer, put a lot of thought into what that might look like, especially in the State Department, and I. I uh, would encourage folks to go look at those recommendations because I I think they're absolutely spot on. That we we just need greater talent or a lot more talent within the State Department and across the USG uh, that's familiar with with technical issues. Um, and then the the second thing is at a high level, I think you know this will obviously depend a bit on on the next administration and the outcome in November. But I, in an ideal world, in my view, the you know sometime in early 2021, there's a clear. Uh, communication coming from the U.S. and from uh, the EU and other democracies around the world, um, articulating just a shared vision for the importance of uh, tech governance to democracy. Uh, We're not going to agree on things, you know, on a narrow, narrow level around things like privacy, but I think we share a lot more in common than we're currently communicating to the world, right? If you're one of the 5 billion people that's not in North America or not in Europe or not in China, you have China coming in on one hand and giving you like a turnkey solution or here's our tech, here's how to govern it, just use it. And it's simple and it's easy to understand what's going on. There's no corollary to that coming out of democracies. And I think we need to kind of put our best foot forward and say, you know, we're not, we don't, we shouldn't, we absolutely shouldn't have the same kind of top-down approach. But I think we're we're really missing the boat in terms of communicating a clear story about how democracy and technology should, uh, should intersect. Um, so with that, I'll, I'll turn it back over to you.
0: Well, what... uh you know, incisive and eloquent uh, way to conclude this superb session uh, from all three of you. I just, uh, I had high expectations and you greatly exceeded them. So uh, thank you, Christopher Balding. Uh, thank you for Anya. Uh, thank you, Anya Manuel. And thank you, Chris Messerol, for this great session. I want to say uh, to our listeners that we're going to put um your various papers and things you've referred to from this session and others on the website of our China Global Shark Power Project at the Hoover Institution uh, so that people can get access to some of your writings. And uh, I also want to say uh, that the challenge of the global digital currency uh, that China is going to seek to roll out and dominate international financial transactions with, is definitely something that we're going to uh, take on in the future. So thank you, uh, all three of you.